Hi, I'm Dan Albaum, AJC's Chief Advocacy Officer and the self-proclaimed president of the People of the Pod fan club. If you listen to the show, I don't need to tell you about the challenges Jews face today. I do want to tell you a little bit about the people who are AJC. We work in 24 cities around the United States. We have 12 international offices around the globe, from Sao Paulo to Berlin to Tokyo. Every one of us knows what's at stake. Every one of us is committed to the cause of fighting anti-Semitism. And we could not do what we do without you. This Tuesday, December 1st, is Giving Tuesday, a day for each of us to support the organizations that matter. I hope you'll consider making a gift to AJC. And if you support AJC today, a generous donor has offered to double any contribution you make up to $350,000. To make your gift, please visit www.ajc.org donate. Thank you for listening. And welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Happy Thanksgiving, Manya. So what are we doing for our episode this week? Sefi, we're doing a throwback Thanksgiving episode and revisiting the topic of racial justice and Jews of color. Sefi, you spoke to Eric Ward earlier this year. Yes, yes, I did. Eric Ward is an incredible leader in the fight against hate. He's a black American living out in Portland, running the Western States Center, which is an amazing anti-hate organization. And I have to say, I think about Eric Ward's perspective on anti-Semitism all the time. He basically says that anti-Semitism is not just something that is a part of white supremacy, but that the very kind of core, the very beating heart of all white supremacy is anti-Semitism. And I enjoyed my conversation with Rabbi Angela Bookdahl about how we, the Jewish community, can do much better embracing Jews of color. Maria, I love Rabbi Bakhtal. I loved your interview with her. She's the incredible senior rabbi of Central Synagogue here in Manhattan and an amazing member of AJC's National Board of Governors. And if you want to listen to the rest of our conversations, we'll include links to the full episodes in our show notes. Hope everyone has a peaceful and healthy Thanksgiving, including you, Sefi. And you, Manya. Let's hit the show. As our nation continues to grapple with the best ways to make progress on critical issues of racial justice, we here at People of the Pod felt that we needed to hear from Eric Ward. Eric is the executive director of the Western States Center, a civil rights organization based in the Pacific Northwest and Mountain States. He is also a national voice for racial justice and a leader in the black community speaking up urgently for the need to fight anti-Semitism, which he identifies as a leading driver of other forms of bigotry. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be here with you all. Thanks for inviting me. Now, as someone on the front lines of the civil rights movement today, the first thing I want to ask is, how are you? How are you doing at this really busy, really crazy time? I think like everyone else, I'm exhausted. I'm carrying a lot of weight, a lot of responsibility. I'm not alone in that. 
We are moving fast. Folks at the community level have really mobilized around civil rights. And, you know, it's our responsibility to, to support that leadership as much as possible. I think I'm both nervous and excited. We are watching kind of, in a way, the end of one age, you know, a period in time and the beginning of another. And we're kind of in this in-between point. And so it feels a little chaotic and we don't know what's next. And I don't know about the rest of folks, but that brings anxiety to me, but also joy, right? I watch folks every day across communities, across religions, really coming together, trying to find one another, struggling with one another. And I think that bodes well. So Mm. while this chapter of the book is not ending particularly well, I think it tells us that the story, in fact, will end well. Yeah, we're clearly in something of a moment, right? Historically, politically, we're in a moment. And I guess the question for someone like you and for anyone who wants to kind of be a part of making this a lasting change is how can we take a moment and turn it into something that really changes our society. So, you know, at the macro level, I feel like, wow, you know, we are actually finally poised to acknowledge that everyone in our society are fully actualized human beings. And that may not seem like a really kind of radical thing, but it's taken a lot of centuries for us to get to this point. And I'm actually really excited to to be here, right? Um, Having a strong democracy means having strong participation. And that participation doesn't happen if we only consider part of our society as as fully uh, uh, human. So at the macro level, I feel like, wow, you know, uh, we are getting close to getting this right. And after 10,000 years, you know, or, you know, 40,000 years, I think we finally earned the right to that, right? So I want to own that. And I hope folks own that for a second. And if it makes you feel good, good, right? So now here's what we should do with that. We should get serious about some very specific things, right? So, you know, 20th century policing has come to an end. It is a system that no longer works for the inclusive democracy that we are. And it is time for a 21st century version of it that is grounded in community safety, right? And the prosperity of our communities. And I think that that is exciting. And I think we should be encouraging those conversations. We should be continuing to encourage folks to be in dialogue with one another, right? And I'll just be plain, right? We can't be a society that feels it is okay to shoot and kill unarmed uh, Black people in our society or, quite frankly, folks who are unarmed and running away. So that's one. Mm-hmm. The second is, is, look, we have to get a hold of the mission-oriented hate crimes. And what I mean by mission-oriented is I don't mean the average hate crime we experience, you know, that the random hate crime. Those have to be tackled too, but I'm talking about this rise of mission-oriented targeting of vulnerable communities and their institutions, whether we're talking about anti-Semitism, right, racism, whether we're talking about the targeting of Latinos in El Paso or a targeting of Jews in Pittsburgh or the targeting of Blacks in Charleston or Sikhs in Wisconsin. It is time for our government institutions to step up and protect 
its citizens and its residents. And uh, we don't need new laws to do that. We need to actually start using the laws that are on the books. We have to bring transparency to those who seek to try to destroy democracy by terrorizing folks in our community. Those are the two things we could be right on top of right now. Hmm. People are talking a lot right now about structural or systemic racism, you know, the kind of racism that doesn't rely on active prejudice necessarily, but is actually all about the compounding historical factors that lead to black people having fewer educational, professional and financial opportunities today. And that lead, as you're saying, to black people being victimized by the criminal justice system. But you, Eric, you've spent a great deal of your career fighting, you just called it mission-driven hate crimes, uh, fighting that kind of much more obvious, kind of traditional, maliciously sinister form of racism, white supremacy. Today, for some reason, we call it white nationalism. There's a difference, I'm sure, between the two to some degree, but it's kind of a fine point. Why is the problem of white supremacy so difficult to tackle? You know, first I tell everyone, take a deep breath, right? Everyone's going to feel charged by what's about to come out of my mouth, but don't be because none of us were here, right, for the creation of the United States of America. So none of us are responsible for what happened in the past. We're, we're responsible to make sure those things don't continue in the present. But it's, it's hard to address white supremacy in America because it's such a fundamental part of the creation story of the United States. Right? And because it's intertwined in such a way, it's often hard to kind of take the thread out, right, of the quilt. And uh, that's a challenge. And, and that's why the structural piece is so important in the present, right? The way we get a handle on the lasting effects of white supremacy is that we document and monitor, right? We have to have systems that allow us to understand the disproportionate impact that African-Americans face when it comes to job discrimination, housing, and education. We, we have to stop thinking that things just happen to end up like this or that folks simply don't work hard enough. The fact of the matter is, is that most folks in our society face the plights they are in not because of something they've done as individuals, but because of structural systems around us, right? Accesses to network. And so that piece is critically important in terms of dismantling white supremacy. We have to shift those structures and we have to monitor those structures to make sure we are reaching equitable outcome. But the other is something that has nothing to do with structures. It's an attitudinal we are raised to perceive the world in very specific ways, right? And the ways that we are raised and socialized to perceive the world have a significant impact on our lives forever. And most of us live in segregated society, right? Regardless of where we live. Very few folks actually live in real multiracial settings, meaning they are regularly engaging with other folks of color uh, as friends and, and colleagues. It's just not how most of our society works. And that reinforces some perceptions that people have of Black America that simply aren't true and lead people to unconsciously believe, right, that Black people are inferior and white people are superior. But it plays out in almost all of our interactions. 
in your important essay, Skin in the Game, How Anti-Semitism Animates White Nationalism, which we'll link to in the show notes, and I encourage all of our listeners to read, because back where we started, right, we are in a moment right now. And, and I know that there are a lot of our listeners, a lot of American Jews, who are eager, who are searching for answers to know, what can we do, right? I posted the Black Square on my Instagram account. I joined a book club about, you know, racial justice. But beyond those kind of symbolic steps, what can we do? to be helpful, to be a part of the solution to fighting this kind of systemic racism that we deal with in our society? So the thing that if I could make a wish, right, if the Jewish community even cared to shine for me, that's not its responsibility. But, you know, if folks really wanted to shine for Eric Warding, give him a great, you know, my birthday's coming up, you know, give me, you know, oh, that Eric Ward said something I liked once and, you know, I want to celebrate. Here's what I'm going to say. Fight anti-Semitism and fight it in a nonpartisan way, right? Don't worry about where it comes from. <laughs> Just worry that it came and you need to respond. Because I say this, right, as a Black man, I don't want to die from anti-Semitic violence, right? I don't want my family members to die from it. I don't want my friends to die from it. And anti-Semitism is killing people in America, and if the Jewish community isn't fighting anti-Semitism, I don't know who fights it, right? Um, I don't know. And so it's a plea. It's a plea not to allow it to be used in partisan nature, right? To just fight anti-Semitism because you have skin in the game, right? And the rest of us, whether we know it or not, have skin in the game. Now, there's three ways to go about that. The three ways to go about it that I think are productive are one is understand, like, you don't treat your friends who stumble into anti-Semitic tropes, right? Like David Duke, right? <laughs> Just like when my friends who are Jewish leaders say something racist, I don't treat them like David Duke, right? I get on the phone and I say, look, let's talk about this. I don't find this very helpful. And sometimes I agree to disagree. We have to distinguish between the argument in the house and folks who are trying to burn down the house. The second thing is this. Make sure anti-Semitism is on the table of discussions. Right? Let folks know, right, that Jewish values are alive and well, right, in America. And so I think that that's critically important. And I understand the risk that that has meant historically for Jews to be open as Jews, right? And so I want to recognize that courageous step. The third is, is to, um, I think you'll fall asleep, but I'm just going to say, you know what? Read that skin in the game. If you fall asleep three times, just read it three nights in a row. When you get done reading it, do this. Find three people who you love who haven't read it and send it to them, but then get on the phone with them and say, I want you to read this too. And let's just hop on the phone and talk about it for a half hour over tea or coffee or drinks. Eric, thank you so much for joining us, for being so generous with your time and your wisdom and giving us some jobs to do. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks all. In 2001, Rabbi Angela Bookdahl became the first Asian American to be ordained as a rabbi. And in 2014, she became the first woman to lead Central Synagogue in Manhattan. She has become an influential leader on social justice issues in the reform movement. 
Rabbi Bookdahl is here with us now to discuss what it means to be a Jew of color in 2020, during a global pandemic, and during a watershed moment in race relations. Rabbi Bookdahl, welcome to the show. Thank you. There has been this conversation ongoing for several months about Jews of color, that phrase, Jews of color, and whether or not Jews of color are adequately measured um, or adequately recognized, um, equally recognized in their congregations. And I was going to ask, do you consider yourself a Jew of color? I always find it so funny when people ask me if I think I'm a Jew of color. I feel like it's so obvious that I am. Um, you know, I was born in South Korea. Korean was my first language. I think that I appear Asian. And it's interesting that some people are surprised when I say that I consider myself a Jew of color. I will say absolutely that my experience as an Asian woman, Jew of color, is very different than being a black man who is a Jew of color because racism operates differently in America. I'm not going to get trailed by a security guard coming into a sanctuary like he did. But I recognized a lot of the other comments he mentioned of the way that people would make assumptions that I didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And still, actually, even when I would read Hebrew and preach and sing and do all the things and wear a talit, that people had such a disconnect that they would still say, but are you Jewish? And, um, you know, it contributes to the fact that when I was named the rabbi of Central Synagogue, that a Jewish publication made it their headline, it's official, non-Jews can become rabbis. So it is stunningly racist. I think the way that I have, you know, still encountered what people would call maybe uh, a kind of tribalism that, that exists in the Jewish community. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that it's the same for all Jews of color. It's not even the same for all black Jews of color. That being said, I think that there are some experiences we share. And I think that ignoring it is not helpful. And I remember that at one point when I was leading services in my college campus, one of my friends said to me, Angela, you just look Jewish to me now. I think she tried to mean that as a compliment. But for me, I was, I was a little dumbfounded by what it means to look Jewish, especially if you look around at what Jews look like. And second of all, I understood that comment to mean that she no longer saw me as Asian in a way. And there was a sense that that was erasing a piece of who I am at the same time. So I um, would invite us not to think of not seeing color, to, to see it, to acknowledge it, to, to uh, glory in it. Is that the Jewish obligation to people of color in our congregations is to, I love your verb, glory in it. <laughs> Yes. I mean, I think, you know, listen, the tricky thing is not wanting to have Jews of color feel sort of tokenized or somehow completely set apart at the same time, acknowledging. And, you know, it's interesting. Here I am. I'm the senior rabbi of a community and I'm a Jew of color. And I make assumptions about how much my community knows we're welcoming and open in this way. And yet we had a black Jew speak from our quote from our Bima um, two weeks ago. And it was amazing how Black Jews in our community came forward and wrote me in a way that created an invitation and an acknowledgement that I kind of wrongly made the assumption because I'm a Jew of color was sort of always there. And so that was interesting. And, you know, in a similar vein, we have a lot of LGBTQ families in our community. And the first time we marked Pride Shabbat actively was last year because we're, oh, you know, we're so welcoming. We have two of our clergy are gay and openly open lesbians that are in marriages. And so I kind of figured, of course, you know that we're open and welcoming. It was amazing what it did for our LGBTQ community to just have it marked at a Friday night service 
with, with Pride Shabbat. And so we should not ignore those differences. We should celebrate them and, um, and see them as like part of the, the mixed multitude that we have been since we left Egypt. We were called an Arab Rav when we left Egypt and we have never been anything but that. We've never been some kind of uh, purebred, Ashkenormative Jewish community. Ever. That's like never been who we are when you look at the entirety of us through all of Jewish history. So it's really just a very kind of um, narrow American Jewish of the last 200 years or even 100 years assumption that there's a way, one way to look Jewish, eat Jewish, talk Jewish. And that's and that's very Eurocentric. Mm hmm. So does that give the Jewish community um, an added strength? Does it empower us to really take a central role in these fights for racial justice? And, and do you think that we fully kind of embrace that strength? Well, I think it absolutely should. First of all, how wonderful that we can have people within our community that can speak in multiple communities and feel comfortable and be bridges between communities and help us understand ourselves and other communities better. Also, how wonderful that we're not monolithic and we have different ways of thinking that can come into this and help us. I do think, though, that not all Jews feel that way and can feel very threatened by looking at a community of people with lots of people of different colors and family family makeup and feel that somehow this is threatening their own sense of Jewish memory or even more so their sense of Jewish identity. If their Jewish identity is primarily cultural, which I would also maybe put cultural slash ethnic, especially when there's not as much substance to what it is beyond kind of a, you know, the foods I eat, the kind of vibe I have, then when you see Jews who look black or Asian or who have a completely different cultural or ethnic vibe that's different, then suddenly it's like, if, well, if that's Jewish, but this is the foundation of my Judaism, then you're, you're threatening my own sense of, of my, my belonging. And so it's not always been welcomed by some Jews. And I would say that oftentimes, you know, the less secure people are in their Jewish identity, the more threatened they feel. Um, I think those who are deeply comfortable and observant and their Judaism rests on a lot more than just sort of some kind of thin cultural veneer um, are less threatened by it, honestly. But I, I think it's an amazing opportunity for us right now. So at last year's AJC Global Forum, you were on a panel about intersectionality. And you told the story about how the movement for black lives, when they adopted a position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you use that as an example of what happens when the Jewish community kind of bows out, right, or, or decides not to take a seat at the table. I'm curious, amid this tumultuous time, do you see a greater willingness on the part of Jews to engage in those difficult conversations where they're bound to encounter uncomfortable, disagreeable, perhaps even downright hateful points of view? I think the Jewish community is waking up in the last year or two to the presence of Jews of color within our own community and the role and importance of them. But I also think that there's a, a reckoning that the Jewish community is having with the fact that Whatever the number of Jews of color are in America, and we can argue about what that number actually is, and nobody really knows, it's probably higher than most people think, but whatever that number is, they are most certainly not showing up in most of our Jewish, organized Jewish spaces of synagogue life, of federations, of, you know, Jewish camps. And I think we need to really take a hard look at why that is. And 
thinking about that, I think that there's a, a second reckoning. We Jews like to think of ourselves as having been deeply involved in the civil rights movement and issues of social justice, and that's right. But when you look at kind of the many of the progressive causes today, including Black Lives Matter, there haven't been as many organized Jewish communities at the table. That doesn't mean there aren't individual Jews who are involved. And with the exception of a few Jewish justice organizations like Ben the Ark or J. Fredge, uh, who definitely have been at the table, you know, if you look at most synagogues, most federations, most Jewish organizations, they have not necessarily been sitting at the table of some of these issues around race and systemic issues of poverty and class. And I think that that's been to our detriment. And I recognize that for some Jews, it's not been a completely comfortable place to be. And I will just name that the way that many people in progressive circles feel about Israel, the um, overt anti-Israel sentiment and sometimes even anti-Semitic sentiment that is expressed in some of those arenas have made Jews feel less comfortable. I'll name that at the Black Lives Matter platform, I believe this has been taken out since, but in the original platform, you know, described Israel as an apartheid state that took part in genocidal activity. And so, you know, that was a reason that many Jews decided they had to bow out of that movement. But if we're not at the table at all, if we're not in relationship, we are missing some of the most important work that needs to happen in our nation today, and the Jewish community cannot afford to sit it out. Well, Rabbi Bookdahl, I believe our time is up, and I, I appreciate you coming and, and talking to us about these very important issues. Anything else you want to add? Well, you know, I think we're a little bit in the wilderness right now. We're Bamidbar, literally in the Torah reading cycle, and it feels that way, actually, with the global pandemic and where we are with everything in the world. But... I've seen little glimpses of that promised land as I think that we all have of what is possible. And I actually feel very hopeful that this intersection of where we are, both with this pandemic and with the pandemic of racism, uh, the confluence of them at the same time has created this interesting alchemy that things can move in a way that I hadn't expected they could shift so quickly. So I guess I leave with a hopeful feeling that um, things are gonna change and I really think that Jews will be part of that solution. I pray that we will be. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.